Welcome, everyone, to a special Reorg Research podcast. I'm Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research. Every now and then, a situation arises allowing Reorg's different teams to work together and cover the situation from multiple angles. For the past few weeks, Windstream and Unity have been that situation. Reorg's journalists, financial analysts, distressed debt, legal analysts, and covenant team have covered the companies from every single possible angle. Today, I'm joined by members of the full Reorg Research Windstream and Unity teams. Before we get into the details, I'll provide a quick overview. In 2015, Windstream spun out Unity, distributing proceeds and Unity interest to Windstream stakeholders. Since that transaction, Windstream's legacy business and intern financials have deteriorated. And then last month, Aurelius Capital Management sent Windstream a notice of default, which has exploded into both an in-court and out-of-court battle, dragging all constituents and related parties into the conversation, including Unity. So, with my part out of the way, let's get into the interesting stuff and talk to the people that actually know what's going on. Chase Column is one of Reorg's journalists, and Stephen Opper is one of our distressed debt financial analysts. Prior to joining Reorg, Chase was a senior reporter at IJ Global, and Stephen was formerly with Evercore. Chase, can you tell us a little bit about Windstream and why they pursued this transaction in the first place? Thanks, Mark. As we noted in a recent terror sheet published October 2nd, The April 2015 spinoff of Unity from Windstream was a multi-step transaction that allowed Windstream to focus on providing communications and tech solutions to businesses and customers, while Unity could focus on acquiring and leasing distribution services to the communications infrastructure industry. Thanks, Chase. So now uh, I want to turn to Steven. Steven, now you've got these two companies uh, Windstream that's providing the service, Unity that, that owns these assets, and, and Windstream now has this liability of $650 million a year to use these assets. Yeah, and it's actually more than $650 million a year because you know Windstream is required to pay for all the property taxes. It's a triple net lease, so they're required to pay for all property taxes, insurance, repair, maintenance costs associated with lease property, and, and also the rent escalates over a period of time as well, I think beginning in April 2018. And in subsequent years, the, the rent increases on an annual basis, uh, according to certain escalators. In addition, capital improvements that are made and funded by Windstream eventually become property of Unity um, immediately upon the, the completion of those construction. And I think $340 million of such uh, improvements have been made to date from Windstream. So it's not just the $650 million a year. There are some additional cash burdens um, on the company as well. So it definitely sounds like a, like a big burden, as you described. How is the business associated with these assets kept up with this um, significant burden in this lease expense? Mm-hmm. Well, Windstream's had some issues uh, in recent quarters, even even since the spinoff of these assets. And so, you know, Windstream is a is a telecom service provider. So they provide communications, um, you know, internet and different applications to both businesses and consumers. Particularly coming out of this transaction, they've relied on the underlying assets that they spun off to Unity. Now, it's hard to understand since they didn't spin off all of their assets to, to Unity. They spun, up, they spun off a significant portion of their distribution assets or the assets that are specifically required to, to, to help distribute this telecommunications technology. But they didn't spin off all of it. So it's hard to tell exactly how the underlying business on those specific assets is done. But as a whole, Windstream has lost subscribers across the board. While the lease payments stayed relatively flat, Windstream's revenue dropped considerably before they started making some recent acquisitions. And is the company doing anything to diversify themselves away from uh, these assets? Uh-huh. 
Well, Windstream purchased, they made a couple of purchases recently. They purchased Earthlink, which was the largest acquisition they made, and and also Broadview. And, and with both those transactions, the, the acquisition of Earthlink provided the company with some additional fiber assets and also has helped them expand into some a- application areas. And basically, uh, SD-WAN is, a, is something that they're trying to move into that the Earthlink acquisition provided them a better basis for. Um, in addition, they purchased Broadview, uh, which was a much smaller acquisition. But as the company attempts to diversify into some new ways of providing telecommunication services and away from more of their legacy provisions, those two acquisitions the company thinks should help them uh, you know, diversify away from the traditional ILEC business model. Thanks, Stephen. Now, I want to I want to bring Peter Washkowitz into this conversation. Uh, Peter's a member of our Covenants team. He joined Reorg from Extract and was formerly with Millbank. Peter, Stephen talked about uh, the burdens of um, this contract on, on Windstream. And I want to read a quote uh, to you from Aurelius in a letter that they sent to Windstream. We'll talk about Aurelius and, and how they play into the situation in greater detail later. But for now, if I could read a quote which says, Windstream misses a potential opportunity to extract value for itself from Unity, uh, something that they said in a letter that they sent. What exactly did they mean by that? And, and what can they, what, what, what can Windstream do uh, to extract more value from Unity as it relates to this lease? Thanks, Mark. Well, actually, under the, the master lease and Windstream's debt documents, there's actually there are really no limitations on its ability to to modify the terms of the master lease. But interestingly, under Unity's credit agreement, there are a couple limitations that will impact the ability for both parties to change the terms of the agreement. Unity's uh, term loan and revolving credit facility uh, contains a specific covenant that restricts Unity's ability to change uh, certain terms of the master lease. Um, it's kind of split into two parts. The first part is an outright prohibition on making changes with respect to the terms of the lease. So um, anything under 10 years is not permitted. The companies cannot amend provisions that have to do with transferring the properties that are subject to the master lease, and there could be no dividing of the master lease into multiple leases. So those three kinds of transactions are completely prohibited. Um, interestingly, the parties are free to amend any of the other terms, but Unity has to meet a pro forma secured leverage test of five times. Now, I, yeah, I've talked to Stephen about this in my coverage of Unity, but the $650, $650 million rent payment pretty much constitutes all of Unity's credit agreement EBITDA for its leverage calculations. So we've had some questions about, you know, could the parties agree to reduce the rent payments? Now, that would be permitted, but, you know, any decrease in those rent payments is going to have an outsized effect on Unity's secured leverage. Um, of course, to the extent that a pro forma five-time secured test would be met, sure, they can uh, amend the, the terms. So a failure to comply with that covenant would trigger an event of default under the credit agreement. There is also a specific event of default provision under the credit agreement that would be triggered if the master lease is terminated other than in accordance with the terms of the master lease. So in either of those situations, um, an event of default would be triggered under the credit agreement. And while Unity's secured and unsecured notes don't have corresponding provisions like that, if the loans under the credit agreement are accelerated, cross-acceleration, event of default provisions would be triggered under the notes. So it kind of is obviously a very long way of saying that 
There is some flexibility to change the terms of the master lease, but subject to uh, Unity's meeting of that five-time secured leverage test. And just to piggyback off what Peter said as well, this has been a question that's been brought up during recent um, you know, Unity uh, investor presentations and earnings calls. The constituents want to know if the company plans on or has been approached by Windstream to renegotiate that lease because it would have a material impact on a, you know, on a dollar-for-dollar basis. It's very high-margin revenue that they generate from that lease. And so... As Peter mentioned, you know, each dollar that decreases in the lease payment has, a, has an impact on Unity's cash flow, which they've been using to now acquire new businesses on their own end, both in their fiber in their fiber business and in their tower business. That's really helped them diversify away from the underlying um, an original one single tenant windstream business. So both sides, uh, you know, have been interested not only on the windstream side, but people people have been interested in the possibility of renegotiating that lease uh, because it's so burdensome. But on the uh, Unity side, people want to know what the risk of that cash flow deteriorating is. I'd next like to turn to Teresa Lee, one of Reorg's legal analysts and former associate in the restructuring group at Kirkland. Teresa, on September 21, Aurelius sent Windstream a notice of default. How do we go from that letter to the current trial in the Southern District of New York? Well, Mark, it's definitely been very contentious. So Windstream filed a case against U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank is the indentured trustee on the 6 and 3 eighths notes due 2023. Those are the notes that Aurelius purports to hold. So Windstream filed that case in Delaware Chancery Court on September 29th. Windstream was seeking to prevent U.S. Bank from declaring an event of default based on the 2015 spinoff. On October 4th, U.S. Bank removed that case to federal court in Delaware and sought to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction. U.S. Bank then filed a case in the Southern District of New York, so a different state, alleging two events of default relating to that spinoff transaction, and that was on October 12th. Windstream then filed a counterclaim adding Aurelius to the case, and the first hearing in the case was held on October 18th. Judge Jesse Furman has tentatively set trial to begin on either November 28th or December 5th, but the judge has stayed the cure period on Aurelius's alleged notice of default until December 7th. The cure period on the notice of default was originally set to expire on November 21st. And what are the next steps and key dates in that trial? So the parties are scheduled to finish discovery by November 3rd, and briefing is scheduled to be substantially complete by November 17th. And the judge has said that the parties should be prepared to go to trial by November 28th, and that's to make sure that the judge can issue a decision by December 7th. And again, that's the date that the, uh, the new cure period runs out. Thanks, Teresa. And turning to another member of REORG's deep legal bench, Saish Seti is the director of REORG Covenants. Prior to joining REORG, Saish was in the restructuring and finance group at Wattel. Saish, your team has written extensively on the merits of each side's arguments. Can you please summarize your findings with everybody? Sure. So the indenture governing the company's notes includes a covenant that restricts sale and leaseback transactions. And sale and leaseback transactions here is defined pretty broadly. It's basically any transaction where a person sells or transfers certain assets and then leases assets back for a substantially similar purpose. Now, if a transaction is a sale and leaseback transaction under this covenant, there are certain requirements imposed upon it. One is that the company had to have sufficient debt and liens capacity to incur the attributable debt from the leaseback. The other is that the gross cash proceeds from the transfer have to equal the fair market value of the property transferred, And then finally, that the transfer of assets complied with various provisions of the asset sales covenant. Now, on first glance, we have a situation where Windstream spun out Unity, so it transferred Unity's equity, 
and then at least back Unity's assets. So it would seemingly implicate this covenant. And nobody is really debating whether or not those three requirements I mentioned earlier were actually satisfied. So if these transactions were a sale and leaseback transaction, the covenant was likely violated. However, the situation's a bit more complicated than that. In 2013, Windstream had created a holding company, Holdings, which directly owns the equity of Windstream Services, which we'll call Services. Now, the company's notes are issued by Services, not by Holdings, and all the covenants in the indentures only apply to Services and its restricted subsidiaries. They don't apply to Holdings at all. So, going back to the structure of the spinoff and the related lease, we have a situation where services and its subsidiaries transferred assets to Unity. Unity was then spun out of holdings, and holdings entered a master lease with Unity to lease back assets. This is basically the core of the debate between Aurelius and the company. The company is pointing out that the lease is only with holdings, not services or any of its restricted subsidiaries, and therefore there's no sale leaseback transaction impl implicated at all. Aurelius, on the other hand, is making a more nuanced argument. They're basically looking to the fact that services and its subsidiaries might not be parties to the master lease, but they use the leased assets, they fund payments to holdings for holdings to pay, make its lease payments, and they also fund capital improvements to the leased properties. Aurelius also points out some disclosures that the companies made to regulators, where the company is almost suggesting that the fact that Holdings is a sole signatory to the lease is basically just a legal fiction. So there you have the two different sides of the argument that are at play. And it's very difficult in this instance, in my opinion at least, to really tell how a judge would rule given this situation. On the one hand, you have the company making a very textual argument. From their perspective, you have a lease, services isn't part of that lease, and so none of that is implicated by the covenant at all. On the other hand, you have the view that's being pushed by Aurelius, where you have a situation where, sure, services isn't party to the lease, but there's almost a constructive lease between services and unity that would fall under the ambit of the covenant. So this is a situation where it's difficult to see which way a judge would rule, but both sides seemingly do have arguments with a lot of appeal. But Chase, it doesn't end in court, does it? Um, what, what's Winstream doing out of court to try and prove their argument? Okay, so in addition to the court process, without getting into the nuances of the situation too much, Winstream has initiated an alternative strategy through issuance of exchange offers for several note series along with consent solicitations that, if successful, could moot the court case altogether. As the carrot, Windstream is offering a quarter of a point for early consent, a limited amount of new secured notes, and some additional principal in the 6 and 3 eighths notes on some of the bonds eligible for exchange. So they're getting new bonds and a consent fee? I've also heard about this double dip of a consent fee. Can you explain what that is? Okay, so this concept of double dipping, what essentially is happening is if you're a holder of one of the note series that are to be exchanged or eligible for exchange, you as a note holder would sign consent on that series. Once a majority of consent is achieved on that series, you can then exchange into the new six and three eighths notes and also sign consent on those notes. So then you're going from a quarter of a point to a half a point of additional incentive. 
So, Saish, how does all this help Windstream in their fight against Aurelius? So, in short, the combination of the consent solicitations and exchanges, if successful, would completely moot Aurelius's argument. So, taking a step back, Aurelius is arguing a default under one particular series of the company's notes, the 6 and 3 eighths. But the company has other series of notes that have similar sale and leaseback transaction covenants under which people can make similar default arguments. So one part of the consent solicitation only relates to these other series of notes, and the company is seeking to obtain a waiver to these defaults under those notes so that people can't make any arguments under those series. Next, you have the exchange transactions. And part of the exchange transactions results in the issuance of additional 6 and 3 eighths notes, which are the same notes that Aurelius has. And by doing so, they're increasing the total principal amount outstanding, which would hopefully allow them to dilute Aurelius's holdings. And by doing so, they have a better chance of success with the consent solicitation that relates to the 6 and 3 eighths percent. Now you don't just have Aurelius's notes outstanding and whatever stub notes were outstanding before the exchange. You also have all these new exchange notes coming into the picture, which really helps the company's chances of getting a majority of holders under that series of notes to waive the default. So Stephen, I saw that Windstream announced they got the majority of a couple of the issues to consent. Let me ask you, if, if I'm a bondholder and my name's not Aurelius, why, why do I do this transaction? Why do I accept these exchanges and and, and consent to this? Mm-hmm. So each of the notes here, are, they're being offered different um, exchange considerations. It really depends on what which note you're, uh, you own and, and also what you're trying to achieve. Uh, for example, the 2020 notes, which is the nearest maturity, they're being offered some participation in a limited amount of secured debt. So the, to the extent that they're trying to move up in the capital structure, they may find that uh, as an option even though the principal amount they'd be exchanging into is a lower um, is a lower amount. It's 95 cents in the dollar. Also, the 2022 and 2023 notes, those only have the option to participate in exchange for additional 2023 notes, uh, although at a, at a premium exchange premium, right? So if they would like to have a, a larger amount of claims um, and any type of restructuring, that could be attractive to them. Now, the 2021s have a more difficult choice. The first option they have is to participate in just an exchange straight up for new 2023 notes at a slightly higher premium than the 2022 and 2023s. They also have the option to participate in a limited amount of that new secured debt as well. Uh, And then to have the excess amount of their claims exchanged into um, additional unsecured debt. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors here. Uh, There's some secured debt that's offered. uh, If people, if, if certain parties are trying to move up in the capital structure, there's additional unsecured debt at a lower interest rate that different tranches of notes can exchange into. So if they want a larger claim eventually, but at a lower cash interest rate in the near future, that's something they would potentially look at. Uh, And then also, as I mentioned before, there's the consent fee. So that's cash right now for parties that are looking to to consent to these, uh, the consent solicitations um, and, and potentially avoid a default in the near future. Thanks, Stephen. And I'd remind everybody that we've written extensively uh, on these exchanges. So please visit our our website and look at past stories where where we discuss really all angles of the exchange and and the consent um, transactions that Windstream is proposing. So so Chase, I I can't imagine that Aurelius is just sitting there quietly. Uh, What's their response been? 
Well, the first thing they did was, uh, after the publishing of the consent solicitations, exchange offers, uh, Aurelius founder Mark Brodsky sent Reorg a letter thanking Windstream for justifying their argument. Aurelius, a few days after the exchange offer and the consent solicitations were published by Windstream, Aurelius sent a letter to note holders that pointed to several issues with the exchange offers that they believe could be enough to encourage the holders not to participate in the exchange and consent process. Uh, now, of course, they're not urging anyone not to do anything. However, the discrepancies that are pointed out could encourage one to hold back on on the decision to exchange. So the letter largely focuses on the loss of original issue discount that holders would experience in a bankruptcy situation. And it also said that the exchange represents a missed opportunity for Windstream to extract value from Unity. Teresa, Chase just mentioned this this concept about OID. Can you explain uh, what that is and, and why Aurelius is bringing it up? Sure. So Aurelius is arguing that the new notes issued by Windstream could ultimately be less valuable than the existing notes. And that would be as a result of the disallowance of OID or original issue discount in a potential Windstream bankruptcy. So OID results when a bond is issued for less than its face value. It's generally calculated as the difference between the bond's face amount or stated principal amount and the proceeds actually received by the issuer. The problem when you get into bankruptcy is that OID can be treated as a form of unmatured interest, which is usually disallowed. That means that the creditor can't recover on that amount. Where it starts to get tricky is that there are three kinds of OID, and they can be treated differently in bankruptcy. First, you have OID resulting from the original issuance, and that's usually disallowed in bankruptcy. Second, you have OID from face value exchanges, where a company exchanges old debt for new debt with the same principal amount, but maybe different terms and conditions. And third, you have OID resulting from fair value exchanges, where the company exchanges old debt for new debt in a reduced principal amount. Different courts have treated these types of OID differently, and that's something that Aurelius notes in its letters. For example, the Second Circuit has held that a face value exchange does not generate new OID, and as a result, the creditor's claim for OID could be allowed. And at least one court has ruled similarly with respect to fair value exchanges. Aurelius has also pointed to more recent Supreme Court precedent that it says may lead courts to different results. So, for example, saying that the OID would be disallowed. But that Supreme Court precedent deals with a general need to follow the bankruptcy code's statutory text over more abstract policy concerns. So it's an open question as to whether courts that are constrained by binding precedent on OID would actually revisit the issue, as Aurelius suggests. Given the uncertainty of of how a court would treat the issue, which really depends on the ultimate facts of the exchange and which courts are looking at the issue, it's difficult to evaluate Aurelius' argument about OID making the new notes less valuable. Aurelius even points to IRS guidance that could be read to imply that OID is created by the initial trading prices of the new notes. So I think that there are really no easy answers here. Thanks, Teresa. I'm going to stick with you and um, talk a little bit more about these these leases. Uh, Peter and Stephen before had talked about the burden of the company, uh, the burden of Windstream from this lease. Peter talked about what, if anything, uh, companies can do outside of bankruptcy. Um, I want to talk to you about lessor lessee relationships and what can a lessee do in bankruptcy to change structure of, of a, a lease. 
So with respect to real property leases in particular, debtor lessees usually have the option to reject the lease. That would mean that the company would no longer have to perform under the lease going forward, and that would be in contrast to the debtor assuming the lease, which means that the debtor basically keeps the lease. If the debtor rejects the lease, the lease counterparty can still file a claim against the debtor for rejection damages. But when a real property lease is rejected, there's usually a cap on the aggregate amount of damages. It can still be quite a large amount. Can debtors or constituents of those debtors seek any other relief from unprofitable transactions? So specifically with respect to sale leaseback transactions, there is a possibility that the sale leaseback could be recharacterized as a disguised financing transaction. And this would mean that the debtor's obligations under the lease would be subject to compromise in a Chapter 11 plan. So if the lease is recharacterized, any recharacterization inquiry would involve a fact-intensive analysis by the bankruptcy court that would take into account a number of factors. For example, the court might consider whether rental payments were calculated to compensate the lessor for the use of the property or were actually structured to ensure a return on an investment whether the purchase price was related to the fair market value of the property or calculated as the amount necessary to finance the transaction, whether the transaction was structured as a lease to secure tax advantages, and whether the lessee assumed obligations associated with ownership, such as property taxes and insurance. Great. Thank you. And, and thank, it, thank you, everybody. That was a really great discussion. Um, I certainly learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot. My thanks to Chase, Stephen, Teresa, Saish, and Peter for your help in putting this together. And thank you for everybody uh, for listening. Uh, I have to say that developments in this situation are popping up faster than in any other situation I can remember in recent memory. It's been an exciting time here at Reorg and one we expect to continue for some time. Thank you again.